and welcome to another episode of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. Uh, as I said last week, we are taking a brief detour away from the 60s, which I know I do a lot because I get guests who are modern guests on, but this time it's a genuine historical detour that is one year outside of the 60s but it's part of the golden era of recording and these are pretty massive albums so I thought it was appropriate. Um, I'm speaking with actually just this episode I'm speaking with Jason Kruper but as of last episode it was Jason Kruper and Ken Womack who have written a fantastic book called All Things Must Pass Away, Harrison, Clapton and Other Assorted Love Songs that tells the story of Eric Clapton and George Harrison's relationship and how it culminated in the two seminal albums that are All Things Must Pass and Layla and other assorted love songs. Uh, In this episode, we sort of go into a bit more detail about uh, the sessions themselves and, um, yeah, that kind of stuff. So a bit more (laughs) appropriate to this podcast, I suppose. Um, So we'll just dive straight in. Here we go, part two of my conversation with Ken Womack and Jason Krupa. We'll just briefly go through where George was at before the recording of All Things Must Pass or the sessions began, because that was pretty interesting to me that he um, he was he he, he kind of did he wrote It Don't Come Easy um, with Ringo. He was producing some of that stuff. He was doing a lot of producing. He produced Billy Preston's record and he even managed to um, to sit in on a, a Bob Dylan session. I think in the US was that. Yeah, that was in May, right? Yeah, it just seemed I didn't realize quite how prolific he was in the the period of time leading up to uh, to the, the beginning of those sessions. It's almost like he'd been let loose from the Beatles, and he was just having a great time writing songs and discovering who he was outside of of the confines of of that band. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he, you know, they finish Abbey Road and and he just doesn't stop. He's, you know, he's working on the Billy Preston album. He's working on Doris Troy. Um, and, you know, he's off with Delaney and Bonnie and he's writing all these other, he's he's still writing songs and um, he does do it. Don't, don't come easy with Ringo. Uh, it ultimately ends up producing that. Um, when it's, it starts, um, we, this, people I'm sure know this, but it starts with, you know, George Martin sort of producing a demo and then George takes over and um, it becomes his thing. But yeah, he, and he, you know, he remarks on this at some point uh, in early 1970, just before he's working on his own album. He's like, well, I, you know, I've sort of become a producer and I don't, that's not who I want to be. Um, but he, you know, he was having this, these, I think these great experiences and again, gathering around him uh, a group of musicians that he really vibed with. And, you know, he he had he talks about this also in early 1970, how he wants to have an Apple house band, <laughs> sort of like Motown does or, you know, uh, Stax or something. So he had, you know, he's bringing these people together and thinking, well, you know, we can turn this into something for for Apple artists. They can always have people to call on for session musicians. And then that basically becomes his house band for his album. All those people that he's drawing in, he just starts calling on them once these sessions start. So, yeah, he, he is, you know, exploring a lot, uh, certainly. And I think, you know, he brings all that to this album. He, you know, that enriches 
everything he does with this record, everything that, you know, that's going on in 69 and early 70 that he's working on. So then moving into the, the sort of the sessions themselves, what, um, how did you even go about trying to piece that together? I mean, so it was all, it was all recorded in studio three in Abbey road. Um, Just about. Yeah. Yeah. And there was lots of musicians present. And as you've just mentioned, there was a sort of core house band, if you like, and then kind of people would come in. How did you even, you know, there was no records of who played on what during those sessions. So how, how did you even begin to start piecing that together? Well, there's, I mean, there's no way to get a definitive list um, just because there are so many people and it changed from session to session and George would, you know, invite people in who just happen to be passing by. So, uh, and, you know, John Leckie, who was the second engineer, was writing all this stuff down. I interviewed him, uh, basically walked through the sessions with him day by day and got his memories of things. Um, he didn't have time to write everything down. He may not have known everybody that was actually coming in the room. And uh, so, you know, he he's just trying to keep up with what he has to do as a tape op. And so, you know, all this is happening and, and everyone's you know, just trying to keep up with what they need to do. So the best thing that I could do was come up again with a timeline where I say, okay, well, I know that Ringo is out of the country on these dates. And I know that Badfinger is on tour these dates. And I know that, you know, Jim Gordon isn't in the, isn't in the UK until this date or around this date. So I began to figure out like, okay, this is, these people could not have possibly played on this session, but they might've played on that session. Um, so it's, it was a lot of just detective work and, uh, you know, the whole, the whole famous Phil Collins story about playing on art of dying. He, I don't think he's on art of dying. I don't hear congas on there, but I, I place him on another song where it's the only song in the album that has congas. So it's stuff like that where it's like, okay, I have to take a look at this and I have to really listen to the tracks. And then I have to look at, you know, what people are remembering, which in some cases is not right, even though they're not making anything up. It's just 50 years have gone by and memories are blurred and, yeah, you know, um, and, you know, you record a lot of sessions and some things over that time are going to blend together. So you're going to remember something that maybe happened on another date or another session or another album. And, you know, that's just how memory works. So you have to be aware of that when you're interviewing people and when you're piecing all this together. And there's still things that I think that I could change or fix. Um, People are still calling me and emailing me and sending me like, Oh, I found this, you know, do you know about this? So, you know, it never ends. And, you know, so, so it, it is, it is a, you have to walk a line, I think. And it's, you know, there's still things that I have questions about where I think, Oh God, I got that wrong. I got that wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, and so far it looks pretty good, but you know, there you do the best you can with something like this because it's 50 years on. I'm like, you know, there's no, nothing was written down in terms of who played what. So it was, uh, it was taking all of that data and the interviews and the stuff that was written down as far as dates and, and things like that. And then determining how all of these pieces fit together. And it, it just, it took a long time uh, to, to sort of work all that stuff out. And the, the one thing that, I struggled with for the longest time is, is, is uh, 
the how Derek and the Dominoes formed and when they were actually present, because the story has always been that they were there from day one and they were they were basically the house band for the record, which doesn't seem to be the case based on where people were at certain times, where mm-hmm. especially Carl Rattle and Carl Rattle and um, Jim Gordon seem to have come in a little bit later, maybe maybe even a couple of weeks into the sessions. And and I just thought, well, that can't be true because everybody's saying that they were there from day one, and they you know they remember this, but it, it just it just once I started piecing it together, it seemed like well, this has to be this you know this, you can't you can't argue with certain facts like where people are. <laughs> so you know it's it's things like that where, and I still I'm still expecting somebody to email me and go, no, I have a piece of paper right here that says that what you wrote cannot possibly be true, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm just waiting for that email. <laughs> no, but so far. So far, everybody's like, nope, nope, you got it right. That's true. That sounds about right. <laughs> well, it's the risk you take when you, you publish something, isn't it, I suppose? <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, you know, I mean, I'm, and I'm happy to accept any other, you know, any other information that counteracts what I have. But, you know, this is what we had when we wrote the book and this, you know, these are the conclusions we came to. Was there um, anything, any particular standout sort of a uh, revelations maybe not even particularly concrete but things that you sort of deduced or worked out that that must have been the case i mean what the the particular thing that springs to mind is the two drummers um conception of that album that people people conceive that there's two two drummers on it but you know as as you say in the book there there must not be right it's you know and there again it's varying perspectives on this it seems like there were two drum sets in in the studio ready. So Alan White's set and then Ringo's. And then when Jim Gordon comes in and Ringo's left, then it's, you know, it's mainly, I think, Jim Gordon at that time, because, you know, at that point later in the sessions, Derek and the Dominoes kind of take over. You can hear the energy. Once you know what songs they, you know, in that period, you can kind of make sense of like, oh, okay, well, that's why that sounds like that. <laughs> um, yeah, that was, you know, that was another one I struggled with. And I actually emailed you about that because like, what do you think about this? Because Alan White told me that he didn't play with another drummer, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at the same time. So that really kind of threw things into, into question. Um, I mean, the other, the other thing that really, I mean, there are a lot of things that, that were surprises, just little surprises. But one thing that, that surprised me that kind of sticks with me is that you know, what Phil Spector was like at these sessions, what he, what his actual role was and how he, how he worked with George, how he worked with the musicians. Cause there's, you know, the stories of, you know, Phil Spector, wild man, waving, waving a pistol around. And, um, that, that wasn't the Phil Spector at these sessions. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, he, he would tell jokes and he would, he would cut up and, you know, he had a lot of energy and, um, a very a very distinctive personality but the, the people that that we spoke to said you know he was in control he was contributing it was a collaboration with george um that's how klaus characterized it as like a collaboration or a partnership and you know at some point he does become unstable later on in this process but for the tracking sessions where he you know that's really his his atmosphere that's really his thing 
he shines, you know, he's in control and he, and I think he's really on top of things at that point. So it was, a, it was, it was to me really, really kind of striking to see all these subtleties, um, you know, so cause we have 50 years of myth built up behind this record mm-hmm. and to, to sort of get close to it and dig in and go into each session and talk to the people who were there. It's sort of, I started seeing the, these sort of, you know, all, all, everything seemed to be much different than what we've come to believe over the years. So it's, you know, there was a lot of myth busting. I think, you know, the broad strokes of it maybe are true, but these, you know, as you get into the details, you realize, oh, this is a much more complex story than what we've been led to believe all these years. What do you think Spectre viewed this record as being? Because it was a, you know, he was his career wasn't in the best place when he started to work with the Beatles. And right. what what was his how did he perceive what this record was gonna do for him or or what his sort of obviously not what his role was, but what um what he was looking to achieve professionally from this record? Well, I, I mean I think working with John on Instant Karma and then taking over Let It Be, uh, and then going to this, it's it's sort of like he's he's found the second phase of his career. You know, he's done his, his, uh, his Phyllis records in LA and he's, you know, retired from the record business, uh, for a couple of years. And he, I think he was looking around for, for what he was going to do next. And, you know, he, he kind of dabbled in a couple of things before this, but then with the Beatles, it's, you know, here, here's an opportunity to really show what he can do. And, uh, so I, I think for him, it's, you know, it's like here, here's kind of rebirth of my career. Um, and as you say, he was not, he was not in a great place. He, he'd sort of, you know, flamed out with, uh, river deep mountain high and, and, you know, felt really crushed by the failure of that record. Uh, even though they loved it in England, it just didn't, it didn't make, much of an impact at all in America. And he took that personally. So it took him a while to come back from that. And, you know, then, then he's in England and he, you know, shows up on instant karma and he kind of takes control of that at George's urging. And it, you know, his relationship with them develops from there. And so with John and George, I think he sees an opportunity to, not, you know, he's, he's kind of doing the wall of sound, but especially with John, John keeps him under, you know, tighter control. Yeah. <laughs> George kind of lets him do his thing, you know, to a certain extent, he's, there's a, there's a push and pull, you know, at these sessions where George is sort of scaling back the musicians in the room and he wants a more intimate recording, uh, you know, the sort of like country inflected tunes mm-hmm. uh, are an example of that. Um but from uh, to get back to your question from Spectre's point of view, I think you know it's a chance for him to, uh, you know, to be a pop producer again, to sort of step into that world that he feels like he should be in because he was successful for a period of time, and you know he can be successful again. I, I particularly enjoyed the uh, this one bit you talk about there being fifteen tambourines on Wawa. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's mental. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's Alan White talking about how um, you know Spectre ha- 
wanted to do these overdubs. So they, you know, they had only eight tracks. And so they're bouncing from track to track as they record each one and build just building up layers of tambourine. So, you know, that may be an exaggeration, but it, you know, it was a lot of, a lot of overdubbing like that. And that's just right at the first session. <laughs> so, you know, and, and, you know, that's, again, that specter sort of showing his thing. It's like, okay, well, you know, I'm, I do a room full of musicians and, you know, so this is what I'm going to do. So you've got all these people crammed into studio three and, uh, you know, he's, he's essentially kind of doing his wall of sound thing with that. There seemed to just be a bit of an open house um, for, for musicians to come in. I love the Chris Thomas story where he says, um, like it was almost choreographed that the, you know, every five minutes, these globally famous people would just stroll through the door and it just, they seem to get like more and more famous. <laughs> right. And right. It just seems like it was the who's who of that scene was there contributing and it, there didn't seem to be any limits. Right. Yeah. And Alan, Alan, um, uh, Oh God, I just blanked. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Alan Parsons. Yes. yes. You've heard of him. Um, talk you know talk, he he said how he came to a few sessions and he anytime somebody would show up george would just hand them a guitar and tell them to join in <laughs> you know so it's it is it's very open house and you know klaus also said that you know george would get a sense of what was happening and he would maybe want to clear the studio out he didn't want to have as many people and he wanted to do something that was, you know, more controlled. He wanted them something that would fit the mood of the song. Yeah. So there was definitely some musical consideration happening. It wasn't a complete free for all. Right. How, how I'm interested in the sort of formation of Derek and the dominoes and, and how, um, particularly the story of, um, Jim Gordon coming in and, and playing percussion on one of the sessions, I think, and, doing it in exchange for studio time um with eric i can't remember the details of the story um and it doesn't my notes don't seem to be helping me <laughs> but there seems well, to be some exchange of of uh, of time for players that that sort of aids um you know eric clapton recording a single right well the yeah so so Eric and, and Bobby Whitlock were there were there from the very beginning Bobby had come over to England to you know, ostensibly form a, a band with Eric. Um, that's sort of what how it how it how it came into into play. That may not have been the initial intent, but it was sort of like, well, you know, he gets over there and he's you know he's played with Blaney and Bonnie. He knows him. He's played on that solo album in January 1970 with Clapton. So he's thinking, you know, here's somebody I can go maybe connect with somehow. And they begin playing and writing songs together. And then George has his sessions, so they get swept up into that. And they decide they're going to form a band, and they pick Carl Radel from Delaney and Bonnie, and they pick Jim Keltner as their drummer. Yes. And Keltner is, uh, he is occupied recording a jazz album with Gabor Zabo and will not be, I've just discovered because I talked to a journalist who interviewed Jim Keltner about this recently. And he, he asked Jim Keltner to look at his diary and Keltner had his, in his diary, he had it blocked out that he would be recording until sometime in August, I think. Okay. So he would not have been available for this 
June 14th date that they have where they, you know, Derek and the Dominoes plays for the first time. So that date seems to have kind of come up without much planning. Um, Meanwhile, Jim Gordon has gotten wind of the fact that Eric Clapton is forming a new band and he just shows up in England. (laughs) I think, I think, I think it's Carl who told him this because Carl was going to be a part of the band. So there's a session on June 10th where Clapton is producing. uh, He's going to start producing an album for PP Arnold, um, the soul singer. And so Bobby's there. Carl is supposed to be there, but apparently he gets lost and another bass player from a session uh, at the same studio comes in and, and sits in and Jim Gordon shows up and is like, I'm here. And so he gets drafted into the band because of that, because they got this gig they've agreed to do on the 14th and they don't have a drummer, even though they have placed ads in the music papers that list Jim Keltner as the drummer. Uh. Yeah. And we, you know, we reproduce that in the book so you can see, see one of the, uh, the music paper ads it has his his name in there so they're still holding on to this sense whenever they place this ad which would have been you know somewhere in that first week of june they think keltner's going to be able to be there but uh gordon shows up and they're like okay well you know you're in the band you know you're here we need you you know welcome <laughs> you're, you're you're in eric clapton's new band right <laughs> yeah. so so uh we you know we we call that a power move on jim gordon's part where he just comes in and he's uh you know he takes jim keltner's spot keltner would not have been available um you know like i said until august so presumably it was you know the, clapton and 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 robert stigwood his manager were looking at a tour to promote that solo album recorded in January because it was coming out in, in August. So my, you know, what I've been able to piece together is that they were saying, okay, well, we need a, we need a band to uh, promote this album. So we'll have Jim Keltner come in when he's finished with that, that jazz record, but things take a turn because Jim Gordon shows up, they do this gig on the 14th. They realize, you know, they've got fire and they just, go back to Eric's place and they start jamming. And then they're, you know, they're playing on the last couple of weeks of George's album where you can really hear them catch fire. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, that's probably not very clear. It's much clearer in the book, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) But that, you know, that's sort of how this, it's, it's not planned at all. It's all very freewheeling and just how people show up and like, Oh, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. Um, so very, you know, very kind of seat of your pants, the way this band comes together and, you know, just has that sort of brilliant flame to it. Why do you think that Eric Clapton needs to, to, to be in a band almost? I mean, George is being a solo artist. Eric has released solo records. Why, why does it, why do they decide to go with Derek and the Dominoes? Um, and why not? sort of just Eric Clapton or Eric, you know, the, the session that they, they played was noted down as George Harrison and friends, wasn't it? And then it goes changed to Eric Clapton and friends. And um, it just sort of interested me, intrigued me as to why Eric always seemed to need to, to, um, to be in a band context and why he didn't just go out on his own. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it kind of goes back to this, this wanting to, 
I mean, there's that we have, they have, uh, Ken has shown this picture of them at the, uh, at the Hammersmith Odeon where it's a, you know, everybody's playing on the bill and George and the Beatles are up front. Eric is hiding in the back, literally hiding. You can barely see him. And it's just that he sort of, he seems to shun the spotlight. And the whole thing about naming Derek and the Dominoes is, uh, you know, it obscures his identity. It's a, you know, totally from a PR perspective, it's a disaster <laughs> because like who, who's Derek, you know, who's Derek and the Dominoes and which is, you know, Robert Stigwood's Derek is Eric, you know, the, the badges that he, that he hands out just to, just so people know who it is. I think he, he was not comfortable being fully in the spotlight and saying, I'm the leader, I'm the solo guy. He just, and, and again, you know, it goes back to what Delaney was you know, pushing him to do, to take the spotlight and, and showing him that he could do that. But clearly, even by the middle of the year, he wasn't prepared for that. He, you know, he wanted this band and he wanted to play with these people and he wanted to create this particular type of music, but he was not comfortable walking out and saying, I am Eric Clapton. Because, you know, on the, on the one hand, he, you know, he's, he's being very, I think, generous to the people around him where he's saying, like, I am not the only star here. You know, we need to pay attention to the other people that I'm playing with, and and it needs to be considered a band. So, in that sense, that you know, uh, obscuring his identity as in Derek and the Dominoes was to say, don't think of this as an Eric Clapton band. Think of this as this group, which yeah. you know, it's not one person just sort of standing out and you know, and determining what this is going to be. So, uh, during the the All Things Must Pass sessions, the Derek and the Domino's band was uh, sort of set up at um, Eric's ha- Eric's house in uh, Hertwood Edge. Um, they had a bit of like a permanent rehearsal space, and they were all they were sort of becoming becoming familiar with each other a, a bit more at, at this you know throughout the the back end of this process anyway. So presumably, when they weren't recording with George, they were together, um, sort of musically just jamming and and coming up with ideas. Right. That yeah. They uh, once they played that gig on the fourteenth. They, you know, they moved into Hurtwood Edge and they just jammed all the time and they did a lot of drugs at the same time. <laughs> so Clapton talks about how you know that was that was uh, it's amazing that they survived that they just had so many chemicals running through their bodies. But uh, you know, it's it was it was something they couldn't sustain. But for that period. You know, in George's sessions, they continued to deliver. They just they showed up and they just played and played and played. Um, and the you know the jam the jams some of the jamming is coming out of that too. Yeah. So the um, Layla and other assorted love songs was recorded in Miami, um, which I sort of thought was quite fitting in a way. I mean, there seemed to be. I don't know whether this was something that you guys contributed to, but for some reason, the whole the whole book, Eric Clapton and who he surrounded himself with, smacked of of sort of American and blues, and uh, George seemed very British. Like it all seemed, you know, Alan White was playing drums, and uh, it all felt very British to me. And for some reason, Eric's choices all seemed very American to me. <laughs> Um, so it seemed to make sense that he'd go over there to record the album. Right. I mean, he had, he had, 
you know, the, the experience working, um, with Atlantic, not necessarily in that studio, but with uh, the producer. And I kind of just blanked again. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's been a rough couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. We'll just edit that in at some point. Um, the, so, so, you know, he had, he had experience and, you know, he could have recorded in England, but yeah, I mean, he even recorded his first album in America in in LA um, the Eric Clapton album. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, yeah, definitely the, the blues are coming from America. So, you know, it, it would make sense that he, you know, would be drawn in some way to these American musicians and, you know, the Delaney and Bonnie thing has so much of that. Uh, it's not just blues, it's rock, it's gospel. It's, you know, it's all these things sort of woven together in that group. And so, you know, he taking these musicians who are in that group is going to give him some element of that vibe already. And, you know, then Dwayne Allman, you know, the Allman brothers, just, just that <laughs> connection, uh, that sparks something in him too, where, you know, they talk about how the sessions weren't really turning into anything. And then Dwayne Allman comes in and it just, you know, it, it sort of kicks things into gear. Then they can be, begin recording. And, you know, and that's when the magic happens on that album. Do you, I mean, those, it was, the, I mean, the sessions themselves seem relatively more straightforward than um, the All Things Must Pass sessions. And he, you can see uh, very clearly the sort of influences, you know, the obviously the song Layla um, being uh, sort of a tribute to, to Patty Boyd and then Little Wing cover, you know that you there's a passage in the book about Clapton being particularly excited to show that to to Jimi Hendrix um and you can sort of see again the same with with George that there's this sort of culmination of of years of songwriting and of him blossoming into a songwriter you can see the journey to this album from Clapton the how it culminates in um you know his his experiences and what he's feeling at that time and who he's met and it's all you can see that really laid clearly on on the track listing on the album. Yeah, I mean he's he's found his he's sort of found this sweet spot for himself where he he can express these things that he's been wanting to express. Um, and you know, Bobby Whitlock is a is a very good foil for him at this time. It's really a shame that that all of that that what they found in this couldn't continue because I think they brought a lot of good things out of each other um, in, from a songwriting perspective. So I think I just lost track of your question, but the, um, well, it was, I was, it was more of a comment on the, you know, on where he was and, and how, and how the album, album had sort of culminated in all of his influences up until that point. And he'd somehow managed to, to distill them uh, in a really, in, in a way that w- is represented so clearly on that album. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. And I'm, I mean, again, to go back to Dwayne Allman, it's just, you know, what he brought to that record was, uh, you know, cannot be underestimated. And, you know, Clapton wanted him to join Derek and the Dominoes. And Dwayne Allman apparently was, you know, torn because he wanted to be with his own band, but then he had this offer and and I think he felt the excitement too. I Something recently that came up um found online someone someone was writing um 
a book about Dwayne Allman and they they had access to his letters and he had written a letter to his wife saying, you know, I'm, 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 I'm paraphrasing obviously, but yeah. that, that he was, you know, he's uncertain about what to do that he, you know, he's kind of, had, he's got to decide which way he's going to go. But I, you know, he seemed to be seriously considering it at least for a brief moment. So, um, you know, that's a big part of this is that, you know, Clapton connected with Dwayne Allman in this, this really powerful way. And that just adds another layer to all of this. Do you think, I mean, this is sort of maybe the ultimate question, but do you think that Clapton would have uh, achieved this album, if to if you want to, to phrase it like that, had he not been around for the All Things Must Pass sessions? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to say. Uh, I think, I think the fact that all of these elements came together during the all things must pass sessions tells us that you know that experience that atmosphere the fact that george was doing this and inviting clapton and inviting bobby whitlock facilitated all of this you know all of that all of these pieces sort of came into place because george was recording that album and you know certainly clapton knew um you know, he knew Carl and he knew Jim Gordon, but he was he was choosing Jim Keltner. And, you know, this this isn't necessarily in the book, but I'm coming to this as we talk about this. And I've talked to, you know, done inter- other inter- interviews about this. But, yeah. you know, let's pretend that George isn't recording this album. And Bobby shows up at Eric's house at, at Hurtwood Edge and they're playing together and they're writing songs. And they say, OK, we're going to we're going to start a band. And they they call Carl and they get Jim Keltner and they go, okay, we're going to promote this album. It's going to come out in August. Keltner's going to be done in August. He comes over. This is what they do. They rehearse, they get together, and they promote the Eric Clapton album. And that's the official beginning of his solo career and whatever happens after that. I mean, who knows whatever what happened after <laughs> that. But, you know, so that to me is like, if George, if you take All Things Must Pass out of the picture, then you know, do these other things come into play? Is all this, you know, is, you know, maybe so, maybe Robert Stigwood, you know, was, was moving pieces around and that was having a greater effect. But I think the fact that they're, you know, they're playing together on those sessions um, just as, you know, they have that first gig at the Lyceum and they're, you know, they're discovering their, their power as a group. You know, I think that had some kind of an effect. You know, maybe they would have still formed otherwise, but, you know, slightly, slightly different circumstance. I think George gave them an opportunity and then he gave them, you know, session time to record that single, even though it was withdrawn, they kind of got that out of their system. And, you you know, you listen to it and it does kind of sound like an Allman Brothers uh, record a little Mm -hmm. bit. Um, It was Spectre producing. So, you know, it's a very different sound than they're going to, they're going to find in Miami. Yes. So, but they, you know, they have to get through that in order to sort of discover like, okay, well, who are we really? And at that point, I think that's who they thought they were. And it's a good record. I mean, everybody's probably heard it, but it's definitely worth seeking out. And then, you know, it becomes something else. But I think, I think, uh, you know, in an alternate universe, maybe that's, maybe that band still gets together. Maybe that band still happens. Obviously, a lot of this is driven by, 
Eric's angst about Patty. Mm-hmm. So there's that, you know, so, it, you know, it's really like, you can't really pick these things apart. No. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm basically, you know, deconstructing my own argument here. Um, <laughs> well, you say so, you can't pick them apart, but I'm, I'm really enjoying listening to you try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to pick it apart and I'm showing you how this doesn't work. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I think the fact that they're on all things must pass, and I think that George is doing this, and I think the fact that they're in each other's lives is is you know so much an important part of how Layla comes to be. Yeah, I I, I think you're right. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, even I tried to prove myself wrong, but <laughs> <laughs> um, that's I mean, I, I I have to just sort of say that the book is, um. I've said it at the beginning, it's so well written. And I love the fact that it's a story that we didn't almost didn't know needed to be told. It's like a, as you guys said at the, at the start of the, this conversation, it was, it's almost staring you in the face. Like it surely someone's done this before. And it's a, you know, at the more, as I was reading it, the more I was reading it, the more I was interested in, the more it all did come together and did sort of explain itself that it, that it needed to be told and that the, both of these sort of uh, seminal albums came out of, of that relationship. And uh, yeah, I just want to <laughs> congratulate you on finding a, a story that did need to be told and telling it so brilliantly. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. We, we definitely appreciate that. Um, I mean, the, the personal aspect of this with the, you know, the love triangle and the going into their backstories is all, you can't separate that. It's like, you see, you can't un- unpick these things from each other. Um, but, you know, to me, this, the, and I think to Ken too, this, the central thing is that we want to talk about the music. We want people to walk away from this uh, or, or, you know, put the book down and, and want to go back to the records and hear, you hear something new as a result of what we've written, or you hear these, you hear these albums in a different way. You hear them with, with a greater understanding of what these people were going through at the time. Um, so yeah, if it if it, it's hard to you know to be objective when you've written something, but if you know, I appreciate you saying that because it's good to hear that the whole story makes sense. Well, I mean, it it's certainly done it for me. You know, I I, I won't listen to them in the same way again, and I hope that uh, people who've listened to this this conversation and hopefully will go out and buy the book and read it for themselves, and it, they'll go through exactly the same. They'll listen to to the album with with fresh ears it's it's almost given a reason i mean all things must pass is it's a long 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 record <laughs> um it's it's great to listen to but to have a to to know all of the background about it and you know i found myself trying to work out musicians after our email conversation <laughs> right. um, you know i'm listening to it just i'm i'm re- i really enjoy sort of really picking apart what what instrumentation is going on there and, and how it's all fitting together. And, um, yeah, it, it has, it's freshened up my perspective on it and I, I, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. And I think it, I think, and I hope it will be the same for everybody else that, um, that kind of reads all this and finds all this information out for themselves. Yes. Thank you. I hope so too. I, we really, we would, that's our ultimate uh, hope for this. Um, I mean, last time we spoke, uh, 
we were talking about your podcast and I asked you what's happening next and what was happening next was this book. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What's happening next? <laughs> uh, uh, well, so Ken and I are, we lost him a few minutes ago. Yes. Um, unfortunately, but uh, we are working on a book about Beatles in 1974, sort of their, you know, the year they officially on paper broke up uh, as opposed to when they broke up in 1970. Um and I, you know, I've been trying to find time to work on the podcast. I'm chipping away at, <laughs> at episodes. Uh, some are written and just need to be recorded, and others are in a much more nebulous state. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, people are interested in producing the Beatles. Uh, there are, I think, 11 episodes up now. And, um, yeah, stay tuned for more because they will be coming, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as we said in our, our first conversation, each each of those episodes is such a huge body of work. And um, it's not like these where I just have a conversation and, <laughs> and put it out there. You you slave over them. Um, so, yeah, each of those 11 is is like a little minute, little book in itself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of production. And I, I am going to do, I'm doing two on um, All Things Must Pass on the making of two of the songs. So there'll be a lot of information there. I don't think people have heard before. Um, some of the outtakes may be familiar to people who collect these things, but um, I, as I was writing this, I thought, Oh God, I have to do, I have to do a couple of episodes on, on the songs. Cause I just had so much material yeah. interviews and new things I'd found. So um, that those will be bonus episodes before I get to the actual new second season. So mm -hmm. coming as soon as I can make, <laughs> fantastic so uh just to just to wrap it up the book is called all things must pass away harrison clapton and other assorted love songs um you can just get it i mean in the uk if you're listening is you it's just on amazon i, I mean that's where i bought mine from um and uh in the u.s presumably it, that's the best place to buy it too right yeah unless absolutely. Uh, unless there's a can you guys but can you buy it directly through you guys uh, no, go through Amazon or if you have a local bookstore that you like, go, I, you know, I always say go to your local bookseller. Of course. Uh, yeah. I like to support, like to support small, small bookstores, local bookstores. So, um, yeah, check it out. <laughs> um, super. Thanks so much. And I can't wait to, to talk to you again about 1974 <laughs> <laughs> in another, in an 18 months time or two years time. Yeah, probably so. Yeah. Give us a little time. Yeah. Thanks so much, Jason. All right. Thanks a lot. There we have it. And I absolutely do urge you to go and buy that book. It is fantastic. Uh, I, I mean, I, I've read... And some of you may have read uh, Ken Womack's books uh, on George Martin, and they are—they're just absolutely brilliant. I mean, I, I'm kind of <laughs> lost for words. They're just—I mean, they—they are, they, yeah, they're just fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Two parters on on George Martin, um, and Jason's podcast on uh, producing the Beatles podcast is also fantastic. So it made complete sense that this book was going to be fantastic. Not only is it incredibly well written, but the information in it is um, a lot of it's new and it's been presented in a way that if you are familiar with the Beatles, 
then it's still very interesting and it doesn't dwell on a lot of the information that's out there already. Um, but then if you're new to the Beatles, it goes in, into just enough, de enough depth that you get a pretty good background on, um, on that kind of stuff. I can't imagine many people listening to this are that new to the Beatles. But anyway, it's, a, it's an incredibly well-written book and I absolutely recommend you go and buy it. Um, so... Uh, that just leaves me to say a huge thank you to you all for listening. Uh, if you'd like to support this podcast by buying a lovely enamel mug, you can do that at my website. All you need is drums.com and there is a link to the shop there. Thanks so much to everybody that has bought one already. I really appreciate you supporting this podcast. Um, I would love to say a huge thank you to Rory Hancock for editing the podcast and uploading it and all of that jazz. To Joe Kane for the intro and outro music, who I am pretty sure by the time this comes out, I will have spoken to him again about his Poppermost project. And hopefully that will be on an episode um, shortly after this one. And finally, a big thank you to David Henshaw for the, the artwork he supplies. Uh, you guys have a fantastic week and I will see you next Tuesday. Goodbye. Goodbye.